Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters, with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse, and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to my co-host, the newest member of the Professional Nursing Committee, Paul Travatt. Hello, Paul. Hi, Rachel. Paul, you joined us back on the podcast in March as a guest at that time to discuss cancer nursing. Now you're the PNC member for London. How's it going so far? Uh, well, it's 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 going incredibly well. I'm very new in role, probably about four or five weeks, and I'm, I'm pretty much hitting the ground running with a lot of the activity that the Royal College is looking at at the moment. Uh, I'm also still continuing to work on the National Vaccination Programme. And since we last spoke, uh, I've been working very specifically with five to 11-year-olds rolling out vaccinations for them. And of a particular interest to the RCN London members, they'll be aware of this, um, polio has become a bit of an issue in London at the moment for mm. young children. And we're actually just starting to roll out polio vaccinations this week at the centre I work at. So again, there's a wonderful opportunity to promote public health there. Pretty busy at the moment, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and that sort of issue of vaccinations and things, maybe something, Paul, we should come back to on a on another podcast. I, I think that's a great opportunity for a topic there. Lots of different viewpoints. This week, following the announcement of NHS pay awards, we're looking at the state of pay in nursing today. A UK government's offering enough to recruit and retain the nursing staff our profession, and most importantly our patients, really need. And how likely is it that nurses will take industrial action? We're delighted to be joined by Ben Zoranko, Senior Research Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Hello, Ben. Hello. And welcome to Nursing Matters. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Ben, we're going to be talking about some quite complicated sort of notions of fiscal and monetary policy. Do you think it would help if there was a greater understanding of these issues among in the general public, greater economic literacy, if you like, so that there could be more informed public debate? I do think that. Uh, I do think it would be a fantastic thing if our economic and also statistical literacy was um, mm. was perhaps a little better than it is. But I also understand that people live busy lives, people have hobbies, people have families, people have jobs, and they don't want to spend their life delving through and thinking about complex uh, data and arguments, and they want other people perhaps to do that for them sometimes. So I think there's a balance to strike. So brilliant that we've got other people like you at that to do that for us and look forward to the conversation today. Well, someone's got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Also joining us for the first time is Denise Kelly. Denise is the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Trade Union Committee and a Northern Ireland member. Hello, Denise. Hello, Paul. Hello, everybody. (laughs) So you've recently taken over the chair of the Trade Union Committee, and we certainly don't need to talk to you about what's top of your agenda at the moment. But we're going to come on to talk about pay and the possibility of industrial action in more detail shortly. But given your new appointment as role as chair... Um, what is it that we can be expecting from you in the coming months? Thanks, Paul. And thank you for having me on to your podcast today. I think it's really important that we can reach out and engage with our members. So I suppose just to say that I do take my responsibilities very seriously. And the most important message I want to get across to our members is that they know that I am here to listen and to answer any questions that they might have about what lies ahead. My priority and that of the RCN is to make sure that our members and their patients are safe. My door is always open and I want my colleagues across the UK to know that they are in safe hands and that we will be there with them every step of this journey.
The cost of living crisis has brought the RCN's Fair Pay for Nursing campaign into an even sharper focus. And just before Parliament went into recess for the summer, an announcement was made of the government's pay award for the NHS in England following the recommendations of the pay review body. Denise, there are differences across the different countries within the UK and differences depending on what pay band individuals are on. So what does the RCN mean by fair pay for nursing? So members can check the RCN website for information on how the pay deals apply to their country and their band. All of the pay awards and offers are hovering around the 4 or 5% mark. They are totally inadequate when faced with the current cost of living increases and the scale of the challenges that are facing each and every one of us in safely staffing health and social care services. The Fair Pay for Nursing is about recognising the immense contribution made by all healthcare professionals. It's about creating a society where nursing is truly valued and those who deliver safe and effective care day in, day out, are paid fairly for the work that they do. It's also about making sure that we attract the people we need to join the profession by paying them a salary that reflects their level of education, training and skills. It is a safety critical profession. It's also about enabling our experienced, knowledgeable people to stay in the profession because they feel valued and that their pay reflects their position. Ben, I think Denise has articulated incredibly well why pay is important for nurses. Do you think, uh, and that feels like a really quite a bit of a difficult or a long question, do you think you'd be able to give us a summary of what you think has happened to nurses' pay over the last 10 years or so? If we start, if we cast our minds back to the very late 2000s, around the 2010 uh, point in time, uh, at that point, the UK government, with the coalition between Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, uh, embarked on a big program of austerity. They were making some big cuts to government spending in a bid to try and get borrowing back under control. And one of the ways they did that was through um, what is often referred to as pay restraint in the public sector. What that meant was pay rises were frozen, there were no cash pay rises, and then pay rises were capped at 1% for most workers for an extended period. And then after that point, the cap was slowly relaxed and pay rises started to um, be slightly higher. What that meant was that over the 2010s, pay for nurses and lots of other public sector workers didn't increase as fast as did prices. So if you look at um, the point from I'm going to start with August 2010, just because that's when the NHS's pay data is published from on its website. And you take up until the most recent month of March of this year, average pay for a nurse was down about 8% once you take into account inflation. Now, the cuts were slightly bigger at the start of the period. Pay started to recover. um, But that's the picture of the past 12 years or so, which is real terms pay cuts for nurses. I guess, Ben, um, I don't know, I've seen headlines today that talk about sort of real pay, which I think is made it has been down three percent on on average. So it sounds like nurses' pay has maybe fallen further behind that. If you just look at pay, ignore inflation for a second, and you look in the in the private sector, you see average pay growing at ju- almost six percent compared to last year. In the public sector it's one point eight percent. So private sector is growing at more than three times as quickly. Inflation is obviously running much higher than that. And Mm. what you're seeing at the moment is um, not just for nurses, but right across the public sector is their pay has been a bit more sticky 
and it is not adjusting as quickly to the changing inflation outlook as it is in the private sector. Private sector companies are much more flexible. You sometimes see headlines of you know, Aldi giving their warehouse workers two pay rises in a year, lots of one-off cost of living bonuses to help their workers. The public sector either does not have or chooses not to use that degree of flexibility. And what we're seeing is public sector workers seeing their pay fall behind their private sector counterparts, even more so than what we've seen over the past decade or so. Okay. So the past decade, the sort of 2010 to this year, largely around sort of austerity and then changes to the cost of living and inflation really then having is a sort of overlaying that that picture. I think basically I'd split it into almost three periods or four periods. Even. So you've got about 2010 to about 2017, where pay was really being squeezed quite hard. Hmm. Then you had pay awards being relaxed a little bit. And maybe some of your listeners and members, maybe you remember pay awards, you know, two or 3%, which at the time when inflation was much lower was was not not too bad in the grand scheme of things. But then we had this, clearly the pandemic, where actually pay in the NHS and in the public sector did quite well relative to what was going on in the rest of the economy. You didn't have people being furloughed or being made redundant to anything like the same extent as you did in the private sector. And then we've had this final period, this global energy shock and this global supply shock, which has not just pushed up prices, but also made us poorer as a country. And that's what we're grappling with at the moment. And that's why it comes after what's already been quite a difficult decade. And it only adds to that that squeeze on nurses' pay. Thanks. That's a really helpful sort of setting that that context. And um, we know that in July, just before the um, announcement of the of the pay awards, the House of Commons Health and Social Care Select Committee um, heard evidence from our president of the Royal College of Nursing, Denise Chafer, about nurses being unable to pay their rent, um, nurses unable to afford petrol to get to work, unable to get a mortgage. And even, and this is something that, that we've heard more nurses being reliant on food banks. We're now um, seeing reports of nurses forced to choose between paying into their NHS pension and putting food on the table. So evidence everywhere that not just nurses, but many people are experiencing financial hardship and that interventions needed. This was reflected by the Select Committee's recommendation to government of a pay award that took account of the cost of living crisis. But the committee's main focus was on another crisis, the crisis in the health and care workforce. As we know, this impacts nursing in particular with tens of thousands of vacant posts. So just um, coming back to, to Denise, Denise, what are you experiencing yourself, but also hearing from RCN members about the impact of that workforce crisis on healthcare services and on patient care? Well, as you know, Rachel, I still work as a frontline nurse. So I see, I hear, and I feel absolutely everything our members are going through day and daily. And I see the impact that the cost of living crisis is having on them. Only as recently as Sunday night, I had a young nurse come to me and say, you know, Denise, I can't afford nappies for my child. I was only paid at the end of the month, but I I have one pound left in my bank account. I hear of more and more going to food banks Members are totally disillusioned. They're they're burnt out. They're sick. They are struggling day and daily, and they feel they're not able to deliver the, the level of care that they are trained to or that they want to. And they're worrying about patient care. They're worrying about the future. And a lot of our staff are now leaving to join agencies. 
because it's instantaneous, it's pen them more fees, but they're not looking at the strategic longer term plan and the impact of, for example, their pension or being able to afford a mortgage or to be able to just pay for things day and daily. So it, it is having a massive impact and crisis in our workforce and we need to do something about this now. If we do not stand up and affect change, things are going to inevitably get worse and it's our safe and effective patient care that's going to be impacted. And I'm thinking about the future of our profession and the future for our loved ones as well. It's just, it's diabolical. It's a terrible position that we're all in and we need to do something about it, which is why we've chosen to go down this route of taking strike action because if we don't stand up for ourselves now, who will and will we have a future as an NHS but it's something that we never take lightly. It's the absolute last resort that we would have to take. And it's really to try and make the government wake up and see and feel the experiences that we are having on the ground and the impact that it's having on our patients. We do have to make a stand for them. We are patient advocates and it's within our code to prioritise patient safety and preserve professionalism and deliver safe and effective care. Denise, thank you very much for that. I, I think what I'd like to do is perhaps bring you back to the, the idea of nurses leaving the profession because you, you, you touched on that. Now, now, we are seeing increasing numbers of nurses leaving, mostly but not only through retirement. And, and this year alone, 2022, has seen a year-on increase of staff taking their NHS pension of around 28%. And in 2021, uh, NMC data showed that more nurses were leaving the profession than in the previous year. You've talked a little bit about pay is a factor for people leaving the profession from working on the front line are you seeing nurses literally walking out of the door for that reason i am paul and i'm seeing more and more staff that are choosing to retire or are choosing to just leave the profession entirely because they feel that they're not able to deliver the safe and effective care that they are trained to give and it, they're totally demoralized they're totally disheartened and stressed because they see what our patients are going through and having those unmet care needs is having a, a, an impact on their, not only their physical, but their mental health. You know, I'm, I'm wondering what do we, what can we do to try and attract people into the profession? And I feel the answer to that is by offering them a salary that they can actually live on, that they can feel it's a fulfilling, a meaningful and an impactful career choice. But we, able, we must be able to recruit and retain our staff to make sure that our patients are given safe and effective care. And we need to make it a profession of choice that's comparable with other graduate professions, that nurses know they're coming into this for life, that they're going to get not only reward from giving safe and effective care day and daily to their patients, but they can afford to have a stable income and to live. And so we've talked about two of the three R's. We've talked about retention. We've talked about retirement. What about recruitment? Do you have a sense of that from both your working in Northern Ireland, but also your role as chair? Do you have any sense if that's impacting on bringing new nurses into the profession? Absolutely, Paul, because there was a time, I think during the COVID pandemic, it really shone a spotlight hmm. on nursing as a career and what we the value we have and what we offer to patients. But I think now that people, the public are starting to see the impact and just how hard a job it really, really is. I think that paying nurses fairly from the moment they join the profession would definitely help to set the right tone for their whole career. It would also demonstrate that they are valued, that they're supported, and that they are in a career that will support them while they support our patients and our public. 
As Benna talked about and Rachel, the erosion of nursing pay in recent years is undoubtedly a reason for people leaving the profession. Why would they want to stay when they can get paid more in, for example, retail or another sector? And be under so much stress, we're making a positive impact on patients' lives every day. And what other jobs would have that sort of life-making decisions to be doing and to have people's lives and their choices in their hands? So I think it's imperative that we attract nurses of the future by offering them a salary that they can actually live on. Nursing is, as I say, a fulfilling, a meaningful and an impactful career choice, but it has to be paid fairly in order for us to recruit and retain the staff needed to make sure that our patients are receiving that safe and effective care. And, and as Denise said, context is, context is very, very important. Now, by the time this podcast will be published, A-level results will have been announced. And now we've seen earlier this summer that the UK's data shows an 8% drop in applications to nursing courses across the UK this year. And so it's, it's potentially, a, we're able to draw some inferences for why that may already be taking place based on some of the things that Denise has suggested here this morning. Let's look in a bit more detail at, at the pay award and at some of the economic consequences of the decisions made by governments and, and by the Treasury. Ben, in England, we saw that the NHS pay award was not being centrally funded by the government. In fact, the NHS was allocated 3% at the start of the year for the expected pay award, with the additional 2% having to be drawn out of existing baseline budgets. What do you think the impact of that will be? I think that will have a knock-on effect on what else hospital services and what else trusts are able to spend their money on. I think... First, there's a, there's a few, just to provide a little bit more context to some of this, this, these discussions about pay, which I think are really important. I mean, what Denise was talking about was incredibly passionate and moving. And I think that the argument about what the appropriate level of pay is should be framed in terms of these issues about recruitment and retention and making sure that we do have the right level of nurses and other you know, NHS and public sector workers in the right places at the right time to provide the services that we all want to see. Taking all these things in the round, it's important to bear in mind that while there has been considerable real terms erosion of pay since 2010, nursing still, um, for lots of people, will still be a um, you know, potentially attractive career path. The government, as you say, has announced pay awards in, in the for simple for simplicity of you know explaining this. I think it's just just call it five percent, and they were planning originally we set out budgets last year for pay rises of more like three percent now this matters because the nhs and other public services have their budgets set in cash terms they don't adjust automatically if inflation turns out to be different to what was expected and the government has said we're going to offer everyone again for simplicity five percent um, but we're not going to give you any extra money to pay for that. You have to find that from within existing budgets. The NHS in England has estimated that's probably about £2 billion that it has to find from somewhere else. At the same time as energy bills are rising, fuel bills are rising, uh, food bills are rising, and some of the exceptional COVID-19 funding is being withdrawn. So that all that combined means that hospitals are really... And the NHS more widely is looking at having to find some quite serious efficiency savings. And I think that ultimately, it's difficult to see how if you want to pay all of your staff more and you don't want to spend any more in total, the only way to make that add up is to employ fewer people. 
And so there may well be savings from headcount reductions being contemplated. You might try and cut back other bits of spending, other bits of the budget. But ultimately, that has to be found from somewhere. And that's probably going to mean painful cuts. It's interesting to note that because Miriam Deacon from the NHS Providers was on the BBC Radio 4 recently. And she was asked how the government should manage the waiting time pressures for this winter. And one of her answers was to commit fully to the pay award of 5% without pulling funds from other services. Would you agree with that? I think if the government wants to stick to its plans to clear the backlog by a certain date and to if it just increase its volume of elective activity by 30%, then I think, yes, you probably do have to think about whether additional funding is required. When back in September of last year, which feels like a lifetime ago now, the government announced a big tax rise, the health and social care levy, and promised to use that funding to increase how much we spend on the NHS. It did that at the same time as publishing this plan for clearing the backlog. And at the time, it looked as though, you know, potentially this is just about doable. It's going to be a stretch. It's ambitious. It's going to require the NHS to strain every sinew, but it looks just about doable within this budget. Things have changed and prices are much higher. Wages are going to be higher. Cost pressures are higher. And I also think it's fair to say that COVID hasn't receded in a way that we perhaps hoped it might last September. And so what looked fairly realistic, if challenging back then, no longer looks that way. And if you still want to deliver that same quality of public service, you probably do need to think about providing additional funding in the billions to the NHS and to other public services. The challenge for the Treasury and for the the new Prime Minister, whoever it happens to be, is that the UK has just become a poorer nation. There's been an unfortunate cocktail of global shocks. Think about you know, the war in Ukraine and a zero COVID policy in China that disrupted global trade and all this other stuff that basically means as a country that imports lots of our energy and our food, we are just poorer than we thought we were going to be. And we have to decide what we're going to do about that. And the two candidates for prime minister, both are very fond of the idea of cutting taxes. There's going to be huge amounts of pressure to provide more support to households going into the winter in the face of higher energy bills. And so providing extra cash to the NHS might be fairly low down on the shopping list. And there's a, there's a world where they don't find the funding for that. And instead, they allow NHS performance to deteriorate. And that, that would be a political choice. Um, but I think it's one that seems you know possible at this stage. So Ben, what, what it feels like, as you mentioned, that's a political choice rather than, say, an economical one. It, it would be a political choice. There's no, it's not for you know economists to say whether if you have a certain amount of funding available as a government, you should use that to cut taxes or whether you should use that to increase spending on public services. That's a choice the government has to make. But I think that it has a set of promises that it made to the country, both in its 2019 manifesto and last year as we were recovering from the worst of the COVID pandemic on things like clearing the backlog, on how many nurses we're going to have, on how many police officers we're going to have, etc. And those promises perhaps no longer look achievable within the budgets they set out. And if they are clear that they want to still deliver on those promises, which they're elected to do, that might mean extra spending. And that is the choice that they're going to be faced with when they enter Downing Street later this year. The RCN and actually a number of other public service unions are asking, as we've heard from Denise, for an above inflation pay increase. And the government's response is that this would further stoke inflation. As an economist, what's your view of that? 
<laughs> Unfortunately, it's a little bit nuanced, but I'll try, I'll try and explain the way I think about it. Often when people are talking about the current situation, the scenario they've got in mind is something like the 1970s, where you often hear the phrase wage price spiral thrown around, which is the idea that if workers get bigger wage rises, that companies will just raise prices and then workers demand even bigger wage rises and you get this self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm. Now, there's reasons to think that doesn't apply to the public sector because if you give a midwife a pay rise, it doesn't become any more expensive to give birth in an NHS hospital. There is no market price for the things that they are producing and providing. So that, that channel doesn't exist, but it doesn't mean that the government is entirely wrong because I think there are two other channels you might think about. One is... If the government, let's say, offered everyone in the public sector a 15% pay rise instead of going to give you above inflation pay award, protect your standards of living, the government would argue that that would act as a benchmark for lots of private sector companies, either because it's very high profile and it would encourage workers to demand something like that for themselves, or because to, you know, to, for them to compete if you are you know, running, I don't know, a private sector nursery somewhere in the country and all the jobs in the NHS have just gone up by 15%, you might have to pay your staff more to keep hold of them. And so through that benchmarking, the public sector can influence the private sector who then do have prices that they can adjust, thereby fueling inflation. The second channel is a fairly simple one, which is just that um, if you increase public sector workers' pay, that increases the amount they have to spend. That will inject demand into the economy. It will lead to higher spending. And ultimately, lots more demand will act, all else being equal, to push up inflation and potentially lead to the Bank of England raising interest rates by even more in a bid to try and squeeze out that extra demand. So sorry for the long answer, but I think it's not as simple as we've seen some government spokespeople and ministers make out. But I do think that offering bigger public sector pay awards might fuel inflation, but that isn't necessarily an argument against doing it. Yeah, because there's also views that if you invest in in health services through the labour market, through through pay, then um, in the same way that you were talking about you know, people spending more, that actually that can have a positive impact on local economies so that a significant amount of that spend will also come back into treasury coffers. It's certainly true that if you give people more money and they go out and spend it, some of that will make its way back to the treasury in the form of you know higher VAT receipts, for example, if they go and spend on you know, consumer goods. Um, but it's unlikely to be anything like close to be enough to paying for itself in terms of how much it costs to, to, to offer those bigger pay awards. It's not going to be a self-funding policy in the way that just in the way that you know, sometimes see some of the leadership candidates hoping that their big package of tax cuts will pay for itself. I think that's wishful thinking. I think similarly, uh, offering big pay awards to public sector workers and hoping that pays for itself is similarly wishful. Um, but it is certainly true that you know these uh, you know, public sector is a big employer across the country. It's a particularly big and important employer in parts of the country like the northeast, like Wales, like Northern Ireland places where the private sector isn't quite as strong. And so uh, those places would particularly, those economies would particularly benefit to higher pay awards. Um, you know, but th- this is, there's, there's all sorts of arguments you can make for doing higher public sector pay rises. But I think ultimately we should remain clear that the, the purpose of it should be not to achieve particular 
a distribution of income across the country and not to you know try and fine tune inflation but the point should be are we paying enough to get the staff we want and the staff we need to deliver public services at the quality we want if the answer is no then you probably need to think about how you can attract those people maybe that's by paying them more um, if the answer is yes then Okay, and I think that's the way we should frame this, at least from an economic point of view. I understand that there are other concerns at play. Obviously, we've been talking about pay, Ben, uh, and the government's pay award that's advised by the pay review body gives or weights the highest percentage increases to the lowest paid bands in the health service. Uh, As a strategy, why do you think this was? If you go through the evidence that was provided to the NHS pay review body, um, there seems to be running through it uh, quite a widely held concern about recruitment and retention at the bottom end of the Agenda for Change scales. So just to give a sort of anecdotal example of the sort of things you sometimes see in the news, you know, Amazon warehouses or supermarket warehouses are offering quite big pay increases at the moment. Um, and for someone who's at a sort of entry-level NHS job, say band, band two sort of level, the money on offer externally can often be higher, in some cases quite a bit higher, and potentially for lower stress. And there's a concern that those people uh, in sort of your band two, band three type roles, they're the ones that trusts are reporting, they're particularly worried about losing. And so and then combined with that, there's this concern that low-income households are those least well-equipped to weather the storm of the cost-of-living crisis and poorer households are facing a higher level of inflation than richer households. We know that. And so there's perhaps on fairness grounds, they've decided to focus pay awards at the bottom end uh, and also and driven by this concern about um, recruitment and retention there. Now, clearly recruitment and retention apply much higher up uh, the pay scales too, as we've heard from from Denise, and is concerned about, about progression. Uh, and I, th- I think I'm right in saying of the, of the pay award that you know, but n- nurses in the in the higher bands will see a much lower percentage increase than those in the in the lower bands. And so what you're getting is what I'd call a compression of the pay scale. The sort of gaps between those at the bottom rungs of the ladder and those higher up are getting smaller and smaller. Um, and that's been a, an approach taken right through since 2010. You had occasions where pay was frozen for everybody except the lowest paid. You had something similar during the pandemic where the NHS got 3%, everybody else was frozen apart from the very lowest paid who got a cash increase. So this has happened over time. And what you've been left with is a world where perhaps the financial rewards to taking on more responsibility, going up a level, for some people, they judge that it's just no longer worth it. It's maybe not worth going to do that extra training course, taking on that managerial responsibility, whatever it happens to be, because yeah, you get a pay rise, but maybe it's not not worth the extra trouble for only an extra, I don't know, couple hundred quid a month, whatever it happens to be. And so that's a calculation lots of people are making. And I think if you continue down that path indefinitely, you're going to run into trouble. There might be signs that we're already starting to get to that point. But I think if you were to year on year give 10% 10% pay rises to those at the bottom end and 2% to those at the top, eventually you'd have a problem on your hands. And Denise, how's the detail of that current award? So this um, disparity between perhaps some of the lower bands and the and the higher ones impacting on the senior and experienced nurses that, that you speak to um, and, and indeed for? It's having a, a big impact on our senior and experienced nurses because, again, 
they're in that role because of their knowledge, skills and their expertise and the strategic planning that they're involved in and delivering safe and effective services to our public and to our patients. RCN have been very clear from the onset that we want a fair pay rise for all nursing staff, irrespective of which band they're in. And I feel, I know Ben had talked about wage compression, but they should be properly remunerated for the job that they do as well. And I, it's a disgrace that it's causing a divide and conquer mechanism nearly by paying the lower bands. I totally understand that they have to have a you know, cost of living pay increase, a real living wage, and they need to be remunerated for the job they do. But that shouldn't be at the detriment of other more experienced staff at the other end of the scale. Everybody's job is critical. Everybody's job is important. And it's very much focused on safety and patient care. And I know that our senior nurses are, I mean, I'm a senior nurse as well. We're finding it extremely hard. And I think it's wrong that they should be getting paid less for the job that they do. Everybody should get a fair and meaningful pay rise. And it will enable us, as Ben had talked about as well, being able to recruit and retain staff in those senior roles. They need to see that they're being valued for the job that they actually do. And at the end of the day, they are our leaders and they are driving healthcare services now and in the future. We're hearing a lot in the news about strike action, particularly from public sector workers, um, not exclusively. And of course, many of us are experiencing it in the actions being taken by the rail unions. But what about nursing? Going on strike is the last thing any nurse would want to do. But for the first time in the history of the RCN, nurses went on strike in Northern Ireland in 2019. RCN members in England, Wales and Scotland will soon be balloted on whether to take industrial action. So, Denise, given the sheer number of public sector organisations and other agencies, both considering or actually going on strike, is there a danger that um, any industrial action taken by nurses may be drowned out by all that collective noise How does nursing make a case? And in doing that, engage with both governments, but really importantly, I think, with the public. What I would say first and foremost, Rachel, is that nursing is the profession that the public trust the most. Politicians are at the bottom, nursing are at the top. So they trust us, they value us, and they know that we're there to advocate for them and to be their voice. I would say that without a properly staffed nursing workforce, the population at large suffers Safe and effective nursing care supports a healthy, well population, and that in turn has a positive impact on local economies. A recent poll showed that, again, 60% of the public would support nurses taking industrial action. Our public understand and nurses understand that it isn't something that we would ever do lightly, but we have got to the point that enough is enough, and governments must take notice not only of what our nursing staff are saying, but what the public are saying too. And Denise, you were involved with the RCN, Royal College of Nursing Members, when you took industrial action in Northern Ireland. Um, for, for listeners and members who are unaware of the background, can you talk us through what was the reason for taking strike action then? So our reason for industrial action in Northern Ireland, it was on two issues. It was pay disparity and it was in safe staffing. So because we had no government within Northern Ireland, Ironically enough, we're in the same position again now, but here we are. Um, at that time, there was pay disparity and nurses in Northern Ireland were being paid less than nursing staff in the rest of the United Kingdom. As a result of that, we were hemorrhaging staff. They were leaving to work in the, the south of Ireland. They were going to work over in 
UK and different countries to be valued and paid for the safety critical skill set and work that we, they did. We also didn't have any safe staffing legislation and we could see that the situation was deteriorating rapidly in Northern Ireland. Industrial action is always an absolute last resort, but we had got to a point where we felt that no action was going to have more of a negative impact on our patient care. So we took the momentous decision. And again, as I say, it was an absolute last resort. We had gone through all other processes to try and mitigate against any form of industrial action. We created the Industrial Action Handbook. We had lobbied our politicians, but we had got to a point where we we did have to take action. So at that time for ourselves, it was an extremely difficult decision to make. It was with a very, very heavy heart. And I can remember nearly feeling sick and feeling a, a sense of desperation that we had to actually take these steps. But once we went through the process and seeing the support that we actually had out on the picket lines and whilst we were doing the campaigning from the public, it reassured me that we were doing the right thing and we did get the outcome that we needed for nursing staff in Northern Ireland. We did get pay parity and we also got a ministerial commitment to safe staffing legislation and for implementation of recruitment and retention so that was increasing our student nurse places making sure that nurses felt valued and then been involved in all strategy building and nurses really having a seat at those decision making tables to be able to positively influence on behalf of our patients and and i wonder could you talk a little bit around the patient safety aspect that how you were able to navigate that through industrial action I know from talking to some of Royal College members, that's been a concern that they've raised and it might be something they'd be really interested to hear your views on. So we used a process of derogations and a derogation really is an exemption that's provided to a member or a service from taking part in industrial action. In general, any RCN industrial action does follow the life-preserving model and life-preserving services and that includes things such as emergency intervention for the preservation of life or for the prevention of permanent disability. So we were able to adopt this model by agreeing derogations with our employers during any period of action. And to put it simply, the service did look very similar to a Christmas Day service. So we had set up local industrial dispute and strike committees. On those committees, we had members of staff who had experience with them, for example, paediatrics, mental health, community services, we determined what minimum staffing levels should be using our life-preserving care model. Um, We had worked alongside with our employers. We set up industrial dispute and strike committees locally, and those committees were made up of members working on the ground who really had that level of intelligence and insight into what constitutes safe staffing levels, what would be an emergency as such, and what levels we would need to provide that safe and effective care to your patients. So using that process, employers actually made the request for derogations. They would have been considered by the local dispute and strike committees and then would have been escalated through to get approval from our country or our regional boards with an oversight committee. So we did have good governance processes in place. And I suppose it's to remember that at the end of the day, the whole point of having industrial action is to have an impact. So it was trying to get that balance between having a positive impact but minimising any risk to patient safety. So again, we did take into consideration those three elements of our life-preserving model and life-preserving services and decisions were always made and approved. We also had capability within that 
that if there was any untoward events, that we would be able to mobilise staff again from the picket lines or who were taking industrial action to go back on and provide those life-preserving services. We did work closely with employers about business continuity plans and at every stage we constantly communicated with each other. We communicated with our oversight and scrutiny committee and we made sure that patient care wasn't compromised and thank goodness no patient did come to any harm in Northern Ireland during our industrial action. Denise, you've explained why there hasn't been an announcement on on pay in Northern Ireland, but has in England, Scotland and and Wales. And in those three countries, um, a statutory ballot has just been announced asking nurses whether they think the time has come to take industrial action as happened um, previously in Northern Ireland. Can you just explain a bit about what a statutory ballot is? So... Rachel, RCM members who are employed by an NHS employer and agenda for change terms and conditions will be eligible to vote. There's very clear laws and legislation around that and it's methodical. Um, If RCN weren't to follow the process or to follow the law, there would be a risk of injunction against us from taking any action. So that's why members are asked, and I see it on social media a lot, why are you not balloting us now? Why are you not getting our opinion now? But we have to get this right for members and make sure that all processes and all legalities are in place before we we ballot or ask their opinion on taking industrial action. And what's the one message you'd want to give specifically to RCN members about about the ballot and how they can prepare to take part if they're eligible to do so? What I would say to them all is, if not now, then when? When do we say enough is enough? As we can see at the minute, the price of not taking action is too high for not only our profession, but most importantly for our patients. Nursing has always put the patient's safety first and now is no exception. I think we've got to the stage where we say patient care is already compromised and our patients are already at risk. By taking no action is also a choice. And I fear for the future of our NHS and for the future of our patient care. So I would say read the information that's sent to you. There is the industrial action handbook that will take you through the process. There are a series of FAQs that are on the RCN website and I would urge them all to check those Make sure your details are up to date and engage on webinars that we are going to be holding that will talk you through this process. And to remind members that you are not alone on this journey, you are not isolated. We are here for you and we will be here for you every step of the way. And most importantly, we will keep you safe. Ben, coming back to you with a a final question, taking us back to that national arena. You've already talked about the fact that we're in the closing stages of the Tory party leadership election. By the beginning of September, by the time, in fact, our statutory balance opens, there'll be a, a new prime minister. How would you think that new prime minister can even begin to address public sector pay and the the workforce issues that underlie that? Well, I, I think given that it's taken 12 years of gradual chipping away at public sector pay to, to have the real terms erosion that we've seen, I think that it's unrealistic to expect it to be remedied overnight. I think that it's making the case that funding our public services and employing a highly skilled, highly motivated public sector workforce is is making the case for that to be prioritised rather than 
say, tax cuts or something else. Because it's, you know, in an ideal world, of course, we'd pay everybody more and we wouldn't have to make these difficult choices. But ultimately, particularly in tricky economic times like this, governing is about making those difficult choices and choosing what you prioritize and paying. So just to go zoom back into the NHS, you know, if you've given a set budget, paying your lower you know, agenda for change band twos and threes a lot more might mean there's less money available to increase pay higher up the pay bands. Paying much more to doctors might mean there's less available to pay nurses. You can argue for that overall budget to be increased, but ultimately it's about how it's distributed. And that's the case right across, the, not just government. Do we give more to the NHS? Do we give more to schools? Do we spend more on levelling up? And then the economy as well. Do we want to raise more in taxes and spend it on public services or do we want people to have more income in their pockets? And these are political questions and those are the, the questions and debates we should be having. Now, there's political choices and I think very struck by your comment about how the UK has really become a, a poorer country and we have to, the political choices that that lie ahead are going to be difficult for whoever comes in as our next prime minister. That's right. I'm sorry to be so gloomy. I can try and off, finish on a more optimistic note if you like. But ultimately, we are, you know, we, we, we're a country that has, for a long time, hundreds of years, been a country that imports lots of our food. We import the majority of our energy. Those things have become more expensive. It has just become, we talk about the cost of living, it has just become more expensive to live. Those are things we need to live. And those things have become more expensive. And that means that as a country, we are just poorer than we were. We have less to spend on the things that we value more. And adjusting to that is going to be painful. And the question is not, can we make that pain go away for everybody forever? It's how do we distribute that pain across households, businesses, public services, and future versions of ourselves. We could borrow to smooth the pain, but we can't borrow forever. And so, yeah, we are heading for a tricky period. Hopefully, we'll come out of it stronger and brighter. This will trigger um, all sorts of responses that will make us a stronger and more vibrant and more successful economy in future. But I can't pretend that the next few years won't involve lots more tricky decisions like this. A good place to finish our conversation. But we'll be back with our podcast soon, in fact, very soon, as we're about to embark on a mini-series of episodes which will focus on these critical issues of nursing pay, the effect of pay on the nursing workforce crisis, and the implications and the impact of taking industrial action. But for this week, thanks to our special guests, Ben Zarenko. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. It's been great to hear an economist view on this. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Denise. And I know we'll be talking much more in the in the weeks ahead. Thank you, Rachel. And very interesting conversations. And thanks to my co-host, Paul Trevatt. Thanks, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, we'd love a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.